I hope y'all don't really mind me gushing, because I'm going to be gushing uh, a little bit. Just a little bit on this one. Holy crap. Written by Ted Sturgeon, who also wrote Shore Leave. There's actually a bit of a story behind that, because if you remember, Shore Leave kind of sucked and had first, dra first draft script problems. But the reason why is because the script had to be rewritten and they were behind on schedule. And the reason why is because Mr. Sturgeon writes really, really slowly, like legendarily slowly. It's a known trait of his that he's a slow writer. So, as a consequence, they just kind of weren't ready with Shore Leave. This is also funny because Amok Time was supposed to come out in late season one. The reason it didn't is because he took so long working on it. That you're probably wondering why. Well, in what amuses me tremendously, Spock was considered the most popular character in TOS at the time. Whether that's true now or in, in you know hindsight or whatever is, is irrelevant. At the time, the NBC, NBC executives perceived Spock to be the most popular character by a fair margin. And so they really wanted this big Spock-centric episode, which was being written by this legend, Mr. Sturgeon. So they're like, come on, go, let's get this thing going. And he took his time, and he took his time, and he pushed out this script. Probably the best script I've seen so far in this show. Pevney directed this one, and while I don't have much to say about the man's directing talent, he does know how to work with his... I don't want to say work with his actors, because actually he doesn't. He, in fact, kind of sucks at working with his actors. But he does know how to work with his cameras and his sets, and he does some really good stuff here. This is the final time, just really quick anecdote before we get into the episode, this is the final time that Chekhov wears a wig. He'll actually have his, you know, Walter Koenig's actual hair after this. We also get uh, some new songs, some new music here by Gerald Fried, or Freed, I still don't know how to pronounce that. Now, I've pointed him out a few times with regards to the music, but there's two songs he makes for this episode which are awesome. I'll mention one later, but the one I want to mention right now is the song. You know the one. You know the song. It's one of the most parodied songs in, like, all of Star Trek. In fact, uh, he himself is quoted as saying that one of the ways he knew that Star Trek had gotten big was because he started getting royalty checks from other shows who were using his music from this episode to parody it. Notably Simpsons. <laughs> this episode introduces a lot of things. Oh, hang on, one more bit of trivia. Uh, I don't know how many of you are of the range to know about this, but apparently in West Germany, uh, ZDF actually put out a massively edited version of this episode. Like, to the point where they literally changed the entire function of the episode by rearranging things and changing the dubbing, so all of the stuff, all the Pawn Far stuff, is actually just a fever dream by Spock, who's sick, and the whole episode is about trying to cure Spock instead. I'm not even sure of all the details of this, because I've never seen this version. Of all the things to be... to, to decide to... to to, oh god, censor, to censor, I'm, I'm just really surprised that that's the specific one they went for here, but whatever. Anyways, Vulcans, we have our, uh, we have another first, I've been missing a few of these as I go, and I've been realizing it kind of bit by bit, but this is our first Vulcan on the show. I'm sorry, I'm kind of memeing, but you get the point. This is the first time we see a full-blooded Vulcan on the show. In fact, we see quite a few of them. You'll also notice they have the Romulan helmets to help hide the ears, to help keep the makeup costs down. 
Smart move. They put a decent amount of money into this one, but at the same time, you can see how it's also still kind of a bottle show. Probably because of the nature of how their budgets were getting slashed and they had to make do with what they had. So most of the episodes of Bottle Show, and then they spend some money where they need to during the Big Pond Far scene. So smart, smart, smart production, smart production, smart producing. More and more as I read, I'm starting to realize that a lot of that is down to Justman, who is, he is, uh, his title, I was actually reading about this in the season three stuff. His title was something like, uh, associate producer, I believe is his formal title, but what he was actually doing was the work of a line producer. And for those who don't know what that means, that means that's the producer who's on set, who's right there, actually part of the overall thing. Uh, nowadays, we might refer to someone like that as a mainliner or a showrunner, depending on the, the specifics of how it's applied. Either way, he was kind of the guy you know, on the... What in the world... Uh, on the, on the in the trenches, actually trying to figure out what to do and how exactly to make it happen, that kind of a thing. Uh, give me just a second. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. It's not going to say it here. There's this whole huge uh, interview by Justman, or rather of Justman, excuse me, at this point where he was talking about why he ended up bowing out of the show uh, after season three. And just he mentions the whole line producer thing and how he was you know pouring his heart. In. Here, here it is. Actually, I just found it. I know that doesn't mean anything to the people not in the industry, but in fact, I had been line producing the show since the beginning, even though my title was associate producer. And when the third season came around, instead of producing the show, Freddie was brought in. That's uh, Fred. Uh, oh God, I don't know how to pronounce that. Um, is there a pronunciation guide over here? Of course, there's it. it, it Friedberger is how I've heard it said before. Fred Friedberger. Fred was Fred was brought in with the title of producer, and I was made co-producer. The studio felt, as all studios do, and I can't blame them, they wanted a writer to do the work of the story and the script. On the other hand, I thought I could produce the show with someone there to do the writing. And Justman goes on about that. Justman's a cool guy. I, I, I have a lot of respect for him. But I bring all this up because Justman, in many ways, uh, gets a lot of credit for a lot of Trek, especially Season 2 Trek, because... He was the guy in the trenches. He was the guy actually, you know, mainline producing, as I mentioned earlier. But I'm getting a little bit off topic. I want to give Pevney extra praise in one other way, because Pevney helped to, in, to add one really critical part to Star Trek history, and I'm not actually joking about that. He helped to invent this. You, you've probably seen me do this. For those of you listening to the podcast, I'm doing the Vulcan salute. Which some people apparently can't do with their fingers. Like, they just have issues with this. Like, Shatner uh, infamously has a really hard doing. He just kind of puts his hand, tries the best he can because he, he can't actually do it. I guess that's just a, a muscle thing. I don't know. Anyways, uh, yeah, they, were, they wanted to have this custom salute thing. They wanted this special way of doing it. And Nimoy and Pevney both talked it over. Now, the reason I mentioned Pevney so specifically here is, while the man's kind of cantankerous and certainly has his issues, the fact is... He's not properly credited in many ways. Check this out. This is a quote from Nimoy. I said to the director, notice he doesn't even name him, humans shake hands when they meet the military people, when they meet, and military people salute each other. Uh, he asked me what I had in mind. I was raised in an Orthodox Jewish family, and during the high holidays I go to the temple with my parents and sit with my father and my brother in a particular point in the survey of the Kohanim, 
who are the priests of the Hebrew tribes, would bless the congregation with the blessing that's familiar to us all. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and so forth. When the time comes, the congregation turns their back and does not look at these men. I'm not sure the reason for that, but in any case, children are taught not to look at the Konim, or they wouldn't perform this blessing. My father would say, don't look, turn away. Of course, being a curious eight or nine-year-old, I peeked, and what I saw was this gesture. The gentlemen were holding their hands in this position while giving this benediction. I was fascinated. I thought I've got to work, uh, learn how to do that, and I worked long and hard to accomplish it. So that's Nimoy's tale on the invention of the Vulcan salute. Allow me to read Pevney's recounting of this. During this episode, Leonard Nimoy and I worked out the Vulcan salute and the live long and prosper together. Oh yeah, by the way, this is also the episode that works out live long and prosper as the vocal salute. So this is another first. It's the first Vulcan salute, it's the first Vulcans, and it's the first live long and prosper. Um, he discussed this in an interview, and he f never mentioned my name. He said, the director, but never be my name. Well, Leonard is now a big director, and I hope he doesn't change as a human being. He was a nice boy with a nice mastery of the language. I just hope he doesn't believe all the bullcrap, because it's so easy to believe. I don't care who you are, you can get corrupted by it, or captured by it, excuse me. I'm sorry, I'm trying to edit his word choice, because there's a lot of cussing that Pevney does, so I kind of edit around that. Anywho, <clears throat> I absolutely am willing to give Pevney credit, even though the man is a cantankerous bastard, because he absolutely deserves credit. He's a good director, and he has been very involved in the creation of Trek as a franchise. I'm willing to give credit to Rick Berman. Why wouldn't I give credit to Pevney, right? Now, one last thing here. Uh, you know what? No. Changed my mind. Let's just go ahead and go forward. So, we have a Spock episode. A big Spock episode. Kirk's like, hey! McCoy's like, hey! And Spock's like, what is this? And flings the soup at the wall as hard as he possibly can. I refuse to deal with this! No! I have a lot of things to from you. I can't even do it because that hurt my voice whenever I do the angry tone. It actually hurts my throat to do it. But... Nimoy does a great job of this almost restrained rage that he portrays here. Now, this is the value of a show that's been going for a while, right here. This is something I've talked about so many times. When, you, when you're going to have a character act out of character, don't do it as the second episode of the show, <clears throat> TNG. And don't do it in season one, <clears throat> every Star Trek ever. No, push it back to, to something to the point where we actually know and understand who the characters are so we can appreciate how different they are, both in nuances and in the more overt stuff like Spock here. If you see this episode, and this is the first episode of Star Trek Giver Saw, you can get the idea of what's going on just because of the way people react to him, but it still won't have that same impact. So he requests to go to Vulcan. Okay. There's this nice bit. Kirk's like, what the hell, dude? And his response is, it is undignified for a woman to play servant to a man who is not hers. Based on what we understand in this episode and the myth building there, and actually myth building, wrong, the world building, the Vulcans basically own each other is the way they look at it. Now, it's portrayed in a way that, I mean, ownership of a human being or a living being doesn't exactly sound like a good way to put that, and I'm not going to try and argue against that. But it is portrayed as being a mutual ownership. You know, it is, we are part of each other. And I'm kind of down with that, at least on paper. I'm, I can see how that could go very badly very quickly, but it doesn't bother me on the face of it. I just wanted to mention that here. Nevertheless, Kirk interrupts and is like, no, that's not what I want. This whole time, Leonard Nimoy is gripping a knife. Uh, do I have, I do, I actually have my box cutter knife right here. He's gripping his knife, 
because I was just opening the box. I've still got the boxes for the new lights just sitting right there. I need to throw those away at some point. He's just gripping it and trembling slightly. And he's just he's just holding that. And every now and again, you see him just kind of... You see what I'm doing with my fingers? Just kind of reflex them and then re-clench and then reflex and then re-clench like this. And he is so restrained in how he plays this because you can see he is funneling all of his rage into his hands so the rest of himself is calm. It's wonderfully chilling, and of course, it is wonderfully acted. So, Spock is dealing with this, and Kirk is like, I, I mean, I, I just want an explanation. Just please give me an explanation. We can just go here. You don't want to go here? Okay, obviously you mean this, and this is kind of how he comes across. It's like, you know, you're not going to explain it to me, but obviously this is something you actually mean. This is not an idle request. So, okay. We'll go to Vulcan. We'll divert. So he goes over to the con. This is brilliant. He, this, this, is, this is, again, Pevney in action here, to give the man more credit. He hits the com, and he's like, oh, check off, we need to set a course to Vulcan. And as he's talking, he looks a little bit to the side, and in the peripheral, he notices the knife and hesitates for like half a second in his dialogue, just a very small bit. But you could see that just kind of, like, like there's just this verbal, mental stumble as he realizes that his friend and first officer has been gripping a knife as he's been talking with him. And then he finishes it like, okay, let's, let's go to Vulcan. We'll figure it out. You notice he also increases the speed. Not to max, just, you know, to get him there faster. Okay. This is interesting, too. What happens next is Starfleet Order comes in and says, we need you to divert to Altair. Kirk says, look, I'm sorry, we got to divert. It's Spock's like, okay. Then Kirk mulls it over for a minute. He's like, you know what? That's stupid. If we book it to Vulcan, how much of a delay would that be? I mean, it's not going to be that big of a delay, right? And obviously this is important to Spock. Notice how Kirk's actions say so much more. There's a lot of showing, not telling in this episode. I've already given you two examples of this. Uh, there's actually three. There's a lot of that in this episode, and it, it's one of the reasons why this episode works so well, and another reason why I praise Mr. Sturgeon and his extremely tight script. So he's like, you know what, screw it. Let's, let's just do it. Turns out they're already going to Vulcan. Huh. Okay. He goes up. He's like, Mr. Spock, what the heck? Why did you divert Vulcan? Spock's like, no, you don't understand. I believe you, but I have no memory of doing that. Kirk's like, okay. Go to sickbay. That's an order. Once again, the use of that's an order like it's a magic thing. What's really funny is Kirk, uh, Spock then follows the letter of the law. And normally I would complain a little bit about that, but... It works brilliantly here because more than anything, what we're establishing bit by bit is just how hard Spock is struggling to maintain self-control, self-discipline. Now, I do not have anywhere near the mind of Spock in universe, but I kind of feel that. I have been in horrific amounts of pain in my life. And it is a challenge to maintain functionality when you are in those levels of pain. I hope most of you do not know what I mean by that, but unfortunately I imagine some of you do. And trying to maintain and trying to stay lucid and trying to keep track of everything while doing that, it, it's a thing, right? And you just you have this these whole layers of patterns. At least this is how I do it. I have patterns. I have bricks. The brick runner. <laughs> in my mind, that helped me to focus. 
uh, you know, I have one brick and I fixate on it to the point where I can acknowledge and process it to lay another brick on it and then another brick on it. And that helps me to keep my thoughts in a degree of order. It means I'm not very adaptable at the time. It means I'm not capable of thinking on the fly, but it means I'm capable of thinking. And I feel very much like that's kind of the similar thing Spock's going through. He is, he's like, okay, I'll follow the order. And once that's accomplished, then I'll go to my room. And then once that's accomplished, I'll, and then McCoy's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to examine you. This, this is the goal here. Spock's like, doctor. And then McCoy's like, no, listen, this is going to happen. And there's this respect between the two, which is good. And I'm going to comment on that later, too. But when Spock lays down, the camera bothers to show his hand, which is trembling and grasping. Just just because he's, again, he's just barely holding on there. So, uh, this is a good time to bring up speed. I know this is a strange time to talk about this, but speed is very important uh, when it comes to anything, but especially sci-fi. I've actually commented on speed and speeds and how much that is a problem over in Enterprise. And when I say a problem, I mean, actually, Enterprise has been doing a pretty decent job, for the most part, of demonstrating how speed actually matters. You know, if someone's going warp 2 and someone else is going warp 4, they will zoom right by them like they're, they're, they're a snail going up against a Formula 1 car. In fact, frankly, even that is not actually a good mathematical representation of the speed variance, right? That's necessary when you have a galaxy and FTL and you need to get around quickly for the nature of the setting to work. Okay, I'm with all that. Here's the catch. One of the things I have had cause to regret, I don't think I've ever really brought this up before, is the fact that the warp scale is logarithmic. The fact that warp 2 is so much faster than warp 1 and warp 3 is so much faster than warp 2 kind of lends itself towards the fact where the difference between warp 2 and warp 3 is, is so huge that it almost gets in the way of the storytelling in some cases. Now, I do feel that can be worked around by good writing. I, I do think that. But I think a linear increase in speed might be more appropriate. Now, why am I bringing this up here? One of the things I've been getting the very strong impression of is the writing in TOS lends itself more towards a linear warp scale than a logarithmic one. Now, I, I know that that's not actually canon, and I know that the warp scale does change twice, and I know the fact that, you know, they, they, the, the technical manuals would come out and completely torpedo all this idea. But ignore all that for a second. As the writers at the moment are writing it, it feels very much linear, linear progression. In other words, warp 2 is twice as fast as warp 1. Warp 4 is five, twice as fast as warp 2, etc. Linear, straight-up increase, right? Now that's important because it means the difference in speeds is much smaller. We can go faster, but going 60 and going 80 isn't really a big jump. Not like going 60 and going 4,000. <laughs> you know? I bring all that up because they talk several times about the warp speeds they're willing to go here in order to get from point A to point B. And most of the time they're just going warp 6, which I remind you, based on as we've established up to this point, is still pretty fast. That is not cruising speed. Cruising speed is like warp 1 to 3. If they go up to 6, they're trying to get somewhere in a hurry. Anyways, I just wanted to comment on that. So this is the first time we get our first thread of the episode, of which there are several. This will kill Spock. Huh. This then leads to probably the best scene in the episode, in my opinion. Kirk goes in and is like, you're going to die. What the crap? I want to know... What the hell is going on here? Spock 
says nothing several times. And then Kirk finally says, I will hold whatever you say in the highest confidentiality. Fun fact. To my knowledge, Kirk never breaks this vow. Not once. So this is when Spock discusses Ponfar. Now, before I really get into this scene and how absolutely glorious it is, I want to share a quote with you. Just keep pulling out this book. <clears throat> this is from uh, D.C. Fontana. Now, what's interesting is, near as I can tell, this is actually not true anymore, which is why I keep bringing up that perspective of how they intended it at the time versus how it has become over time, thanks to retcons and development of the setting. But at the time, and I quote, I don't remember if it was Gene Roddenberry or Gene Kuhn who came up with the idea of the Vulcan mating cycle, but the way we've established it is most people don't stop and understand this. This is Fontana. Vulcans mate normally, anytime they want to. However, every seven years you do the ritual, you do the ceremony, you do the whole thing, the biological urge. You must, but any other time is any other emotion, humanoid emotion, when you're in love. When you want to, you know, the sex urge is there, you do it. This every seven years business was taken too literally by too many people who aren't stopping and understanding. We didn't mean only every seven years. I mean, every seven years would be a little bad, and it would not explain the Vulcans of many different ages, which are not seven years apart. Now, she's totally right about that. I don't know if this is necessarily not canon anymore. I suppose that is a debatable factor. But I bring it up because the Ponfar is so very rarely discussed in Trek history that... It's, it's still the kind of thing that could be debated. I mean, it comes up once in Voyager, and it's mostly a joke there. It comes up over an Enterprise. It has already come up in Enterprise in one episode, and it was kind of a one-off joke there as well. Although, in Enterprise, it was treated as if they only ever have sex once every seven years. At least, that's how Reed and Mal Malcolm took it. That wasn't Malcolm, that was Tucker. Sorry, Reed and Tucker take it. Anyways, I just wanted to comment on that. So let's get into the scene. Vulcan pride. This is another first. First Vulcan, first salute, first LLAP, first installation of Vulcan pride as a concept. There is a tremendous amount of Vulcan pride. I've talked about this many times across Trek. This has come up many times over on Enterprise already. That pride is an integral part of their culture. They are very proud of their heritage, of their control, of their logic, of their accomplishments. Now, I'm not saying this, this is not an insult. This is not me saying, ah, oh, they're so prideful. It's part of who they are. That pride is an integral part of being a Vulcan. Tuvok is actually probably one of the better examples of this, but getting back to the point, in this episode here, we see they refuse to talk about this to outsiders for over a century which for once is actually an appropriately huge amount of time, the Vulcan people who have been part of the intergalactic community and are one of the founding members of the Federation, although that hasn't been established yet, for over a century, these people have kept this hidden from their close allies and confidants. They have completely walked away from ever re revealing this to anybody, to the point where it's not even in the medical databases in the future as a voyager, to further emphasize this point here. They don't talk about it. That's how important this is to them. That's how embarrassing this is to them. How humiliating, how ashamed they are of this. But at the same time, how much they embrace it. Now, this is the kicker. Do you think the Vulcan as Vulcans are ashamed of the fact that the Ponfar exists? Or of the fact that they're totally cool with it? That they embrace it as part of who they are, as T'Pau says later in this episode. As we were in the beginning, so as we are now. This is the Vulcan heart. This is the Vulcan soul. 
I imagine the answer actually varies from Vulcan to Vulcan, but it's interesting to think about, isn't it? Imagine, for once, I don't find this unbelievable. Imagine the, the leaps and the logical twists that people have had to go through over the centuries, or the century, excuse me, so that the Vulcans never really have this issue. Although, considering the fact that Spock is apparently one of the earlier uh, long-term Vulcan assignees on a Federation ship, it would kind of make sense. You know, if, if they're stationed on a star base or if they're part of the Federation Council or whatever, it's a lot easier to take a leave of absence and just go peace out to, to Vulcan than it is when you're on a starship on assignment, which could be why Spock and this is one of the first times this comes up. You'll also notice Spock actually has a line. This, I love the tightness of the script. Spock has a line where he talks about how uh, he thought he was able to skip over this. He doesn't mention why. He just mentions, I thought, hopefully this would not be something that would affect me. Why? Because he's only half Vulcan. And thus the hope that, you know, even though he identifies as Vulcan, biologically he would not be restricted by this problem. Unfortunately, it does hit him. But I bring this up because this helps to explain why he hasn't already taken me measures into effect to make sure that he would be able to accomplish what he needs to accomplish. So that's all brilliant. Did I mention, by the way, at the beginning of this scene, there's this picture of T'Pring as a kid, who is, he, as Spock is looking at, just a very small bit of foreshadowing there. So that's the pride thing. Now we have to re-emphasize the pride thing, because they don't even talk about it, for the most part, internally. It's something they acknowledge, but they don't really discuss. Or at least that's how Spock thinks of it. I think with total certainty that Spock despises the Ponfar as a concept. He is not cool with it. He is not a traditionalist. Someone like, say, to Paul, she would be more ashamed of the fact that she's not ashamed of it, whereas Spock is someone who is ashamed of it, to give my, my thoughts on that, and as always, opening, opening the floor for your guys' thoughts as well. So, then we, he has this wonderful line, proudly logical. Just in case you think I'm making up stuff here, he, they are proudly logical in how they approach it. I love this, God, I love this scene. And I want to mention Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. How many of you like that film? I will quick, in case you didn't hear the... If you're on the MP3 right now, I, I just rose, raised my hand rather quickly, because I actually really, unironically, absolutely enjoy that film, even though it is pants-on-head stupid. And a lot of why is because of the actors and how well they play off of each other. It is a lighthearted comedy romp, which is funny because it's all about trying to save planet Earth, but that is what the movie is, and it embraces that wholeheartedly. But allow me to add one other little tidbit of why I love Voyage Home. Spock and Kirk. Or, to be slightly more accurate, Shatner and Nimoy. I talk a lot about chemistry, and the chemistry of how actors can act off of each other. It's always actors. The characters could theoretically have chemistry with each other, but chemistry is an a aspect of presentation, which means it's always going to come down to animation, motion capture, acting by a live actor, or voice acting by a voice actor. So in other words, it really does still come down to the real-life people who are playing the characters for chemistry to even be a thing. You can't have chemistry really between two characters in a book in the, in the sense that I am utilizing the terminology because there's nobody playing either character, so it's just letters. So whether they have any chemistry or not, it's entirely dependent on your own personal interpretation and is one of many reasons why I don't do books on my show. <clears throat> so, I, I posit that Shatner and Nimoy really do have excellent chemistry together. 
they're one of the only duos that have that kind of chemistry on this show. There's a few others. Uh, there's actually a couple of nice scenes in this very episode between Chekhov and Sulu, which are pretty good. And obviously McCoy, he just kind of gels well in there as well. But I wanted to praise that because one of the strengths of this scene is how well the two act off of each other. Because it's just, it's, <laughs> it's just two actors in a room talking to each other. And that just sounds so boring. And yet it's the best, in my opinion, best scene in the episode. How many best scenes across Trek are two people acting in a room? How many can you think of off the top of your head? I bet you could come up with a dozen if you sat down and tried. I bet if I just sat here right now and paused the rumination, it was like, okay, so we got Sarek, and we've got Duet, and we've got Walt. As much as I actually don't like what Walt did, I have to admit, Ducat and Sisko had some great chemistry and, and some great scenes playing off of each other there. Um, I, I'm going to stop. You get the idea. We could just sit here and talk about how many great scenes this are. And it sits on the weight of those actors... The director pulling the performance out of them, which is Pevney in this case, and the scriptwriter, which in this case is Sturgeon. And all of them managed to pull that performance and make this engaging. It's worth noting, by the way, we're not even halfway through the episode at this point. As I've said multiple times going through TOS and Enterprise uh, for this particular run-through, this is one of those episodes where I feel like, oh my god, it's only been ten minutes, as opposed to, oh my god, it's only been ten minutes. You know, the different tonality because there's so much density of what's going on. One final note. This is this is bloody brilliant. At the end of the scene, Kirk wanders over to Spock and says, very quietly, I haven't heard a word you said, and I'm going to get us to Vulcan. This then leads to him talking to Admiral Cormac. Remember him? I actually pointed him out earlier. Cormac says several things, uh, noteworthy, the most noteworthy of the fact that he is making this in absolute order. Because Kirk does not give sufficient reason for the de delay, for the diversion. Now keep that in mind. Because the Admiral does, Kirk goes for permission, of course he does, you know, it's a chain of command, it's a military. The Admiral makes it in order because he didn't get sufficient reason. If, if you, one of your people comes to you and says, hey, I need some time off, but I can't tell you why, it's like, okay. I have absolutely no doubt, zero doubt, that if Kirk said, Spock is going through this deeply emotional Ponfar thing and explained it to the Admiral, and, and he will die if we don't do this, the Admiral would say, go to Vulcan, deal with it. Zero doubt of that. But Kirk doesn't. Again, showing, not telling. I absolutely, I'm sorry, I love this plot point. Um, so much of the dilemma of the episode and, and the danger to Kirk's career is the fact that he absolutely refuses to break that confidence. So he recognizes how personal, how ashamed Spock is of what he revealed to him, and he does not spill. Even to the point where basically it's, it's such a minor thing. It would be so simple. Spock's life is in danger. Let's go do this. And it would solve everything. He still refuses to break his word on that matter because it is that important to him because it is that important to Spock. Love that. More than anything I have seen in this show, that shows how much these two characters are connected to each other. He is willing to risk a blemish on his career and possible court-martial and possibly ending his career. He says this flat out. This man has saved my life 25 times over. I am willing to end my career for him. He is willing to do this, not just to save Spock, but to save Spock's pride. Think about that. 
Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm gushing so much. I just really like this episode. This is my favorite episode so far, by the way. Looking at the list, you know, Errand of Mercy was absolutely incredible. Balance of Terror was absolutely incredible. You know, City on the Edge of Forever, Taste of Armageddon, Conscience of the King, This Side of Paradise, Squire of Gothos, and Devil in the Dark are my VHS lists so far. I'm actually, I've been keeping a real list this time. Amok Time absolutely smashes all of them. But, but, so, before I move on, I am obligated to point out something that Cormac said. We need to go here to show a demonstration of strength that will resonate all the way to the Klingon Empire. Wait, 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 wait. Back that up. You want one of three Federation ships, probably cruisers, since you're sending the Enterprise, so actually probably heavy cruisers, to wave the flag as a show of solidarity, and you specifically mention that one of the reasons you want to do that is because of the Klingon Empire. I'm just pointing out that the Truman Doctrine is still well in effect, because that's absolutely what this is, I guarantee it. They are specifically trying to posture and proxy and get the Altair people out of this, this war that they've been into and into peace to show just how much better the Federation and the Federation way is over the Klingon way. Anywho. <clears throat> Kirk, uh, so Kirk refuses the, to break the confidence and he says, we need to go to Vulcan, warp eight. It's the first time they've gone this fast in the whole episode, by the way. At this point, Kirk is like, yeah, no. No more playing around. Crank it. In fact, he says warp eight at a minimum. I want those engines screaming all the way there. <laughs> there's a nice uh, there's a nice scene between Chapel and Spock. I don't have much to say about it, unfortunately. It's just a nice scene. And it's nice to see Major Barrett actually being given something to do. What I like most about the scene, though, is actually the music. Da -da -da. Da, 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 da. You know the one? It's kind of like this low. I'm not sure if that's a violin. It's some kind of string instrument. A uh, violin or a thing that's much taller than a violin that I can't think of the name of. But now all my comments is just going to be the name of that instrument. Oh, why do I do this to myself? Don't, don't do it, guys. Don't do it. I don't care. I don't care. What I do care about is that this song is playing. It's being played by Bemi uh, Kessel. And this is, again, Freed or Fried in his music. And it's Spock's theme. It's called Spock's theme. It's actually probably my favorite song on the show so far. They will play it again for several other things. But it's, it's, it's good stuff. It's actually a deep emotional piece that perfectly encapsulates Spock as a person. That kind of almost melancholy. Love it. So they rush there. And this is when Spock says, I, I, he, he doesn't say this in these words. But he says, I want you to be my second to Kirk. You know, it's my closest friends and my closest confidants. I want you there. And Kirk says yes. And then Spock hesitates a second and then says, I'd like you too, Dr. McCoy. You know what McCoy's response is? I'd be honored. I mentioned this earlier. McCoy and Spock have had sparring matches and, and back and forths already. That's already been a thing that's been established. And that will continue into the future. But I love little moments like this to help to establish the level and depth of respect and friendship the two really do have, despite that. Or perhaps because of that. How many of you have friends that make fun of you constantly? Not for real. Not actually, like, abusive or toxic friends. I mean, hey, dumbass, what's up? Oh, nothing much. I was just thinking maybe I should... See, I can't do this on the fly. Um, you're playing a video game. And I was like, hey, I, th I think, you know, Bob decided to finally join the game. Oh, yeah, why? Well, he stopped standing there, uh, staring into space for seven minutes to actually do his job. You know, it, it's, it's joking. It's poking fun. You know what I'm talking about. I, I imagine a huge number of you have experienced this. There's no venom there. There's no bite. There's no 
actually mockery. It's just you're jabbing at your friend, and your friend's jabbing back at you. That's what friends tend to do. It's not always. Not every friendship is like that. But you know the type. This is McCoy and Spock in a nutshell. It's a little bit of a different take on it, because Spock has that whole dry attack take on it. But Spock also always has the rejoinder, doesn't he? And he's always willing to engage in the sparring match. Hell, that even happens at the end of this episode, actually. With the line that ends with, in a pig's eye. Remember that? So then they go down to the planet. We, we get quick exposition. There's atmosphere, it's light atmosphere, and it's very hot. Now, just looking at it, you could probably guess the heat part. But it's a good thing that they actually mentioned that, just as an aside. Once again, tight scripting. This is actually pretty good exposition. Because neither of them have been to Vulcan before, so they're actually commenting on it. In fact, the way McCoy comments on the heat is, now I understand the expression, hot as Vulcan, or, or however he phrases it, <clears throat> or in Vulcan heat or whatever. So we get that exposition early and good. You also notice the wood chimes. I've mentioned before that each planet had his own sound. The wood chimes are the sound of Vulcan now, so that's cool. So then T'Pau shows up, slightly different actress from Enterprise. And i got to give special praise to Celia Lovsky, which I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. As with so many other excellent guest stars in TOS, it is the sincerity and the gravity with which she portrays herself that really helps sell the role. This is actually something that another actress who I don't have her name in front of me uh, would do over in Enterprise in Fallen Hero. I'm going to look up that name really quick here because I, I want to give her special praise on this one. But it's, it's, it's going back to what I've talked about many, many times where... You know, good guest stars just absolutely elevate an episode way above and beyond what otherwise would be capable of happening. Would you believe this is the halfway point of the episode, by the way? I sure hope you'd believe that because I actually don't have much else to say from this point onwards. Not, no, not really. I mean, there's a few things to talk about, but for the most part we get into what is effectively the action sequence. I was like, okay. Valar. Valar is the name of the character played by, oh god, Fionula, why am I sucking at this? Fionula Flanagan. Miss Flanagan. I know it's Flanagan. I know how to pronounce that. So Miss Flanagan, which I, I give tons of praise for over on Enterprise, does an excellent job of the same thing. Anyways, so we're at the halfway point. Notice, by the way, to once again go back to that Vulcan pride thing. Spock has to swear on his life just to allow Kirk and McCoy to be physically present for these events. That is how seriously they take this and how much they are not joking around on this point. So then, <laughs> uh, she does a wonderful job of her thing. They do the whole ceremony and T'Pring's like, no, I refuse. I choose the challenge and I choose Kirk. This is actually really messed up if you think about it. I'm going to go ahead and talk about this now, but towards the end of the episode, she fully exposits why she did things in this way. Once again, tightly written script. She does not want to be married to Spock. I'll actually talk about that in just a second. She does not, she wants Ston. Okay. She decides that the only way, well, logically, the only way that she can ask for a divorce is to challenge. She chooses Kirk because, she chose Kirk on the fly, because that way Kirk isn't going to choose her. He doesn't give a damn. So she's free to have Ston. If Spock wins, 
he will either be disgusted by her challenge and not choose her, so she has Stan, or he will go with her, and she now has rights to his property and, and wealth and whatever. And by the way, it's mentioned several times that Spock's family is certainly well off, and considering that his dad is Sarek, I absolutely believe that. So she'd be well off, and then she'd get Stan. No matter what, she gets what she wants. All that has to happen is Spock or Captain Kirk have to die to make this happen. Huh. There is a level of cold ruthlessness to that that just kind of makes me raise an eyebrow. I mean, I don't blame her completely. She was locked into a marriage she did not want, and so she was taking the path she could to get out of that, but she was literally willing to have someone die in order to accomplish that at her own direct and deliberate behest. I might add. Ruthless. This also is the reason I mentioned this for later, too. Spock has this comment that he mentions to Stan, uh, played by Lawrence Montague, who actually played Decius back in Balance of Terror, and also was actually one of the backup people who might have replaced Nimoy as Spock if Nimoy's agent hadn't signed on for the increased sale thing I already mentioned. Anyways... Shoot, what was I talking about? <laughs> uh, Stesius, Stan, Lawrence, Montague, the choosing the Kirk, politics. Oh, he's telling Stan. Spock tells Stan, having a thing is often more pleased. Excuse me, having a th thing is often not as pleasing as wanting a thing. It is not logical, but it is often true. Which is a good quote. Not 100% true, but a good quote. What I like about it most, though, is with the advantage of an analysis, what he's deliberately saying is, <laughs> you just got this woman to be yours. This woman who is a very ruthless, cold, brutal, willing to allow death in order to accomplish her ends woman. Have fun! At least that's how I take it. So then, they fight, and they fight, and they fight, and they fight. I, I, a couple of things I want to mention. I mentioned the Spock thing earlier. She mentioned that he's a legend, and... T'Pau mentions that Spock is so deep in the Ponfar at this point that he, he's, he's non-functional. You're not going to be able to talk to him for a bit. Then Spock comes up and speaks. Now, this is not bad writing. In fact, T'Pau is astonished that he is actually able to do this. Why do I bring this up? Spock is exceptional. This is something I bring up because, unfortunately, I feel too often Star Trek tends to write Vulcans as super smart because Spock was super smart. Let me be very clear about this. Spock was a genius. By Vulcan standards, he was a genius. By Vulcan standards, he was a legend. He was above and beyond anything they'd ever had before, and frankly, have ever had since. He was an extremely intelligent individual, not because he was Vulcan, but because he was Spock. Little bits like this help to establish that, that even the Vulcans are astonished that he has the self-control and discipline to speak in order to try and push Kirk out of the, the, the fight to the death because of his concern for his friend. That is exceptional. So then they fight in ignorance, and they fight, 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 and they fight. I, unfortunately, I don't have much to say about this. It's actually a good fight. It's actually really good choreography and good camera work. One of my favorite tricks they use periodically, they, he, Pevney, uses periodically, is he'll go with a POV cam, you know, like basically a head cam, showing, you know, parts of the fight, which are then split amongst other parts of the fight, so you can feel, feels a little more personal, rather than just watching the stunt doubles. It also helps to mitigate the stunt double issue, because the stunt doubles, as usual, don't really look much like they're, they're the people they're stunt doubling for. 
But when you switch between, you know, stunt double Spock going, ah, ah, and then you jump to a first-person perspective from Kirk's perspective where you see Leonard Nimoy jabbing directly at the camera, it helps to kind of smooth over that issue. It, it basically kind of bypasses some of the effects and budget issues to make it look far better than it has any right to. So this, this is a good fight. I'm actually with it. This is when that air and atmosphere thing come back in. Uh, excuse me, heat. Heat and atmosphere thing comes back in. And McCoy's like, hang on, hang on, I got an idea. Because McCoy is very good at thinking on his feet. Rushes over, gives him the thing. How did he have that on him? You know what, let's not question that. <laughs> McCoy just walks around with a simulate death thing at all times, just in case. Anyway, so he hits Kirk. Kirk is <clears throat> killed by Spock. Spock freaks out a little bit. Um, gives McCoy his orders. McCoy beams up. Spock goes to interact with Pring. Finds out that she's kind of evil. Leaves. This is also when we get Live Long and Prosper. I love his response to that. I will do neither. <laughs> By the way, really nice touch. To Pow, to McCoy, I grieve with thee. Now, I could just hear, just picture in Archer's tone, Scott Bakula saying, I thought grief was a human emotion. I think this might be one of the earlier establishments. Because remember, these are our first Vulcans ever. I think this might be one of the earlier establishments of the idea that Vulcans, as a species, do have emotions. They just keep them under control. It's a very minor touch, but I wanted to comment on that, because this might be the first where that, that concept began. Anywho, this then leads to one of the more infamous scenes in the episode, where Spock comes up, Jim! I can't even lie. I've, I've seen this episode 20, 30 times. It still gets a big old grin out of me whenever I see that. Nimoy nails it so hard. He, he just absolutely portrays it exactly as he should. And this also helps to establish something that has been hinted at many times, but this is the first time it is absolutely no really made clear Spock really does feel. He just keeps it under wraps, keeps it under control, which, funnily enough, ties exactly into what I was just talking about with T'Pau. He cares so much, and he feels so much, and there is just this shock of overwhelming joy at seeing Kirk alive that he, he absolutely loses control for just a second. And we see how Spock actually feels in that one little moment right there, which is brilliant because we've been seeing it the whole episode. Spock has shown many times how much respect and concern he has for Kirk and vice versa, and with McCoy and vice versa, the whole episode. I've talked many times about how, you know, you, you, you need to get the rest of the cast involved and how ensemble casts are awesome and, you know, they need to do something other than just stand on the bridge and do nothing. But I will also give credit that having this really tightly focused emphasis on the core trio really works well when you have tight scripting, good acting, good chemistry, good director. This is an absolutely brilliant episode. I know that City on the Edge of Forever is often considered one of the best. I think this one blows it out of the water, to be completely honest. Ignoring its obvious significance to the entire franchise for establishing so many things that would help develop the world building and the very nature of what the galaxy and the people of Star Trek are after this part, it is still an incredibly tightly scripted, amazingly acted, amazingly directed episode, which absolutely is sits on the strength of its characters and has wonderful dilemmas. It's, it doesn't even have a proper threat of the week in the strictest sense of the word. I didn't even mention the other threats because they barely matter. It's all part of that specific character-focused drama. 
So forgive me for gushing for however long I've been talking here. I hope you have enjoyed my thoughts. Live long and prosper. Just cool.